Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, December the 15th, 2024. How to evaluate the state of the free press well this week there's been a lot of coverage of a uh, a piece um in uh, in the economist by james bennett a former new york times journalist about how the new york times lost its way how it was rather censorious lots of hand wringing um according to axios bennett suggests that the New York Times was guilty of illiberal bias, firing him essentially when he allowed for the publication of a piece by a Republican congressman, which some people saw as unconstitutional and undemocratic. Um, but of course, the free press is more than James Bennett, and it's more than the New York Times, even if the New York Times probably doesn't think of the free press as much more than the New York Times. It's a bigger issue out there and it's covered by my guest today andy lee roth who is the co-editor of project censored state of the free press in 2024 an annual publication he co-edits the book with mickey huff who's been on the show before uh and his um day job is associate director at project censored and he's joining us from a very rural part of washington state uh, andy I don't know if you've been covering this New York Times uh, controversy. I'm sure you're rather bored with it. I'm guessing you're no great fan of the Times. Uh, But how does that reflect on the state of the free press? Is it a preoccupation with the New York Times, which reflects the absence of a free press? Or is it just a kind of absurd distraction in in a bigger story? I think the New York Times, first of all, Andrew, thank you for having me on the show. Um, In answer to your question, I think the New York Times is, of course, uh, uh, bills itself as all the news that's fit to print, a kind of uh, grandiose uh, gatekeeping identity that's part of what Project Censored is interested in opening up for discussion. Um, As far as the controversy, at some level, it fits with a critique that Project Censored has been making since its inception in 1976, which is... uh, I'll paraphrase roughly, um, the problem with the corporate news media is its narrow definitions of who and what count as newsworthy. And those definitions exclude much of what would pass as the mainstream in the country, um, a fairly narrow range of legitimate political debate. And that's why we at Project Censored don't refer to the New York Times and other establishment outlets as um, as the mainstream media, because in effect, and I think it's more accurate descriptively to say they are the corporate news media. They reflect in many ways a corporate worldview. And some of the controversy you're talking about there, I think, has to do at some level with the, although it's political, it also has to do with the business practices of the time at the times as a commercial entity. So what would what would reflect a, a genuine free press outlet. If, if the Times is corporate, I'm guessing you would say the same about the Wall Street Journal and probably the Washington Post. What is an example of what you would define as free press? 
Well, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that those entities aren't part of a free press. Uh, there are many topics on which the New York Times and the Washington Post and others uh, do important reporting. And it's not a kind of reactionary position on the project's part to be critical of the corporate media for the sake of being critical of them, but to be critical of them when they fail to provide us the kind of news and information and perspective that we need to be engaged in our communities and to be proactive as citizens in a democratic society, or at least what purports to be, uh, uh, what aims to be a democratic society. In terms of the question, I think that we live in perhaps the richest age for robust, independent investigative journalism in the history of the country. And that includes a historical perspective going back to <clears throat> 100 plus years ago, the golden era of muckraking. There are more really excellent independent news outlets out there now, but the problem is one that the project's, uh, the project's founder, Carl Jensen, identified as news inflation. Uh, and Carl's unpacking of the term was the idea that we seem to have more and more news, but it's, it also seems to be worth less and less. And so in some ways, I think what the project is doing is uh, through its annual story lists, uh, attempting to draw the public's attention to independent news outlets that don't have the giant platform and the blinding uh, lights that the Times, the Post, the Journal, the television networks and cable networks, the, the big platforms that those entities have can't be matched by independent outlets. Nonetheless, many of those independent outlets are doing as good or better a job of reporting some of the most pressing systemic issues of the day. Uh, earlier this week as well, there was an interesting announcement that Mother Jones and the Center for Investigative Reporting is going to merge. I'm guessing, Andy, that for you, this is genuine news media, but some people might say, and I'd be curious as to your response on that, but some people might say, well, he would say that because it's a progressive left-wing uh, publication. How would you respond to that kind of critique? I'm sure you've heard it many times. Yeah. I mean, they are, but the key criteria, I think, is that they're independent of corporate uh, ownership and therefore the pressures uh, of, 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 of a corporate uh, commercial agenda in terms of advertising revenues and the like. Now, of course, uh, Mother Jones is sponsored. This is, I mean, to step back, I think at some level what this is, is uh, another media merger. Uh, we've known since uh, Ben Begdikian's uh, book, Media Monopoly, that uh, consolidation of media ownership is, is often a threat to diversity of media content. Most of the time when we talk about conglomeration, we're talking about partnerships, uh, consolidation among major corporate outlets. So this is an interesting story in that it's a, it's a, the conglomeration of what have been two essentially independent media outlets. Um, but sure. I imagine it's, it's the result of some of the same pressures. And I think it remains to be seen. I wouldn't want to try to give a 24-7 hot take on yeah. what this means for independent media in terms of how, how, how will this affect either organization's ability 
to continue fulfilling their important uh, missions. Uh, but time will tell on that. Andy, we haven't even got to the state of the free press yet uh, in 2024 or elsewhere, but we'll get to that. But I'm curious, what's your take on the Atlantic, for example, which seems to be a quite a swashbuckling, investigative publication, mm -hmm. quite popular, but of course owned by Steve Jobs's multi-billionaire widow. Um, it's it's for profit. It takes advertising, but that doesn't seem to have affected its editorial agenda. Are you arguing that if you have to sell advertising, by definition, you're not really an example of the free press? No, I think it's not so simple as that. Um, I would say, I mean, The Atlantic is the kind of outlet that I would say, if I was still teaching in the classroom, I taught sociology for years uh, before getting involved in Project Censored and then partly an overlap with my time as the associate director of the project. And I would integrate Project Censored material, including the yearbook into my introduction to sociology classes. And when students began researching independent news stories of their own, the, a question would always come up, is this an independent news outlet or is it corporate? And there's no cookie cutter answer to those questions. Usually what that would happen is those would be, uh, uh, as, as, as teachers like to say, teachable moments. We would ask, we would have a discussion about, well, what are the kind of pros and cons on an argument that the Atlantic is independent or that it's corporate? I would say my answer to your question now would be on the whole, despite the, the kind of uh, financial ties that you note, that the Atlantic is more independent than corporate. And I wouldn't mind seeing Project Censored carry forward on its top 25 story list, stories reported by the Atlantic. But there's an important caveat on that, and it goes to one of the other crucial dimensions of what the project does. Project Censored is, has always been about uh, uh, the advancement of critical media literacy. And Carl Jensen, the project's founder, was doing that with students at Sonoma State University before we had a term for it, like critical media literacy. But one of the basic lessons, I think, of critical media literacy for journalism, for people interested in news and journalism, is you can't... It's. It, you err, you make, a, 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 you make a, a, a mistake that you can easily avoid when you treat any outlet on any topic as trustworthy or not trustworthy. Really what you need are critical media literacy skills so that when you read an article on a specific topic in the Atlantic, instead of trusting, oh, it's in the Atlantic, it must be uh, a completely valid article, um, you can assess for yourself what are the range of sources in, used in the article? Um, what is the evidence uh, supporting the claims made by the author of that article? And with just a little bit of critical media literacy kind of uh, orientation, people can sort for themselves whether this article is trustworthy or not. And that goes back to what I was saying earlier about not wanting to dismiss reports simply because they're in the Washington Post that would be a terrible mistake, or the New York Times. I'm using. So really, the, the 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 definition of free play of free press is in the not the eye of the beholder, but the eye of the reader. It yeah. it's determined by the reader. So, a responsible reader could read 
the worst kind of Murdoch press responsibly, and then it would be free press. Is that what you're saying? No, no. I I think like Murdoch. I I, I think reporting from Murdoch outlets will almost always fail the kind of critical media literacy inspection that I'm suggesting people engage in. Um, I think you'll find a narrow range of sources cherry-picked to represent a narrow range of political perspectives most of the time. Um, so no, I don't think it's in the eye of the beholder, but I think there are, there are standards that function better on a story-by-story -story basis than they do on an outlet-by-outlet -outlet basis. We are speaking with Andy Lee Roth, the co-editor, perhaps co-author of State of the Free Press 2024, a uh, director of Project Censored, a man based very much committed to a free press. Andy, let's go back to the Times just for a moment. I don't want to make this just a conversation about the Times, although, of course, I'm bringing it up again. But one could argue that when James Bennett was not allowed or got into trouble for publishing content that a lot of people were uncomfortable with. It wasn't for commercial reasons. It was for ideological reasons. The Salzburgers pushed him out, not because they were worried about selling newspapers, but because they were worried perhaps about offending not just their readers, but the sort of the ruling zeitgeist of the age. How, how does ideology and commercial interest, how do they interact in your view, in your critique of, of corporate media? Well, I think that when we talk about the Times as a as an example, of, uh, an exemplar, if you will, of corporate news media, it's really hard to tease apart those political ideological interests from those commercial financial interests. They, in some sense, go hand in glove, right? Because we're talking about a country where, or we're talking not just about a country, but a world where corporate entities uh, wield as much or more power than national governments in many cases, right? If you think about the ability of the United States, for instance, to uh, uh, obstruct the free flow of information, I'm not sure that the United States government, it, 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 meaning the federal government, is, is as powerful as, say, Google in its ability to control the yeah, flow of information yeah. globally. We haven't got to the internet. I, I want to yeah. address the um, whole question well, of the so internet, think, platforms like Google and how they change all this. Mm -hmm. So, I, I mean, I think in terms of the, the New York Times, that's those, those, of course, at the level of reporters and their day-to-day -day operations, they have to maintain relationships with their sources. And that can entail a certain kind of coziness that ultimately becomes exclusive. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier about narrow definitions of who and what count as newsworthy. Um, uh, but I also think that those daily news gathering routines intersect uh, within corporate news outlets in ways that are more pervasive perhaps than is the case at an independent news outlet like say Truthout or Mint Press News, for example. What about Watergate, though, as an example of the way in which a presidency was brought down in the 1970s? Again, the Washington Post back then was part of the Graham family, was a, was a corporate entity. Um, certainly, I think your definition of a free press has had some influence, perhaps in exposing, for example, 
seems to be the corruption of Clarence Thomas. But does it require, Andy, a, uh, a media with the commercial legal clout resources of the Washington Post or the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal to bring a presidency down, to bring a Nixon or even a Trump down? Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting question. Um, and Watergate is an interesting case in terms of kind of the deep history of Project Censored because it was a question in one of Carl Jensen, the project's founder, uh, one of his seminars at Sonoma State, a student asked how it was possible that on the night Nixon was reelected, that there was no mention on any of the network news stations of Watergate, even though that investigation at that time was, was public knowledge. Um, and that question puzzled Carl and led him to begin looking at other kinds of stories that weren't being covered by uh, the establishment press of the day. Um, so, I, I, I mean, I think, you know, in the sociology of news, which is my area of kind of background expertise, uh, and maybe in kind of in critical media studies of journalism uh, more broadly, there is some skepticism, you know, the kind of legendary story is that it was, it was uh, Bernstein and Hayward who, who, who broke the story, right? Deep throat and all, all that. Um, and I think there's something to that, but there's been a lot of kind of critical revision of, of the role the Post played um, that looks more broadly at kind of institutional uh, factors and and moves away from kind of the 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 I, dare I say idealized story of the two intrepid investigative journalists who brought down a presidency. Uh, so I, the sociologist in me wants to say it's more complex, and there are a host of organizational factors that shape that. The other thing I would hasten to add quickly is, of course, we're in an entirely different media environment now than we were in say 1974. Um, right. In that intervening 50 years, the emergence, of course, of the internet and social media has, let me put it this way. When I first finished graduate school and was teaching courses of my own, sociology departments around the country still had um, courses with titles like the sociology of mass media and the emphasis there on mass. No one teaches courses with mass media in the title anymore because we've moved beyond, although there is still mass media, that term being shorthand for the idea of one, one outlet broadcasting to many audience members. But in a social media internet age, that model is just one paradigm and it's not even perhaps the most primary anymore. Um, and so I think the media environment, like an answer to your question about bringing down a president, we're in a different place politically and the media ecosystem has been radically transformed in those 50 years. Yeah, and I want to talk about the transformation of that media ecosystem, talk about social media after the break. I want to thank another example of what at least I would consider free press, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, a magazine, a quarterly magazine put out in Washington, D.C., not corporate owned, no advertising. Um, been very supportive of this show, bringing us high quality content. I'm going to try and run a short ad for Liberties and then we'll be back to talk more about the state of the free press in 2024. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. 
It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. Um, Andy, the fact that I'm running this ad for Liberties, they support us, they advertise on us, they want keen on listeners and viewers to subscribe. Does that make me an example of the free press? Or does that undermine? Does that Should that make people suspicious? Should people be thinking, oh my God, he's supporting Liberties, uh, Leon Weaseltier, controversial, intellectual. <laughs> Um, should should viewers, listeners always be aware of, of, of what or who is supporting other media? We live in a market economy, Andrew. And so every entity, whether it's a nonprofit like Project Censored or your program, Keen On, or the Washington Post, all have bills to pay. That's a reality. Um, we don't have, although Project Censored has long advocated for public options for media as a commons, um, especially for journalism as a commons that supports the public good and public interest. So until we uh, move in that perhaps more utopian direction, paying the bills is a bottom line reality for all of us. Um, I think that insofar as uh, Keenon is transparent about its uh, sponsorship, and then I guess I would put a question back to you that you don't have to answer, um, but does the a sponsorship uh, affect your editorial judgment about how, this, how and what this program uh, addresses? Uh, no, but they're, they're very hands off shall we say I, I don't know what would happen if they demanded one kind of editorial content or another i would of course hope that i would say no but as you say we all need to pay our bills the economics of all this andy are so important the, the news this week hasn't been good more and more journalists and media uh people have been laid off uh 20, jobs lost in 2023 according to pointer uh, many of them journalists. It doesn't seem as if there are many journalist jobs to, that are left to be cut every year that the news is worse. How much does that, the fact that journalists are being laid off, whether at corporate or, com or, or non-commercial media, how much of that uh, darkens the state of the free press in 2024 in America? It absolutely casts a dark shadow over it, uh, if not uh, I, I will overextend that metaphor, so I'll stop there. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I go back to the COVID-19 pandemic, the heart of the COVID-19 pandemic, which hit uh, local news outlets as hard as any other business enterprises in the country. Um, and there have been the, the lay and the layoffs simply haven't started. So our analysis a few years ago was that COVID-19 had acted like an X-ray uh, in many ways, revealing internal weaknesses in a number of our institutions, including, uh, uh, you know, a for-profit media premised on advertising revenues. Uh, and I was living in Seattle, Washington at the time and uh, of, of the heart of the pandemic and, uh, the, the Stranger, which was the, the strongest independent publication in Seattle, quit printing a print, uh, quit, 
quit publishing a print edition. And that struck me as a real loss. They went online only. Um, the, I, to me, the connecting the dots part of your question is going from the layoffs of reporters to the shuttering of local news organizations and the rise of what we talk about, Mickey Huff and I, in the introduction to the state of the free press 2024 yearbook is the rise of news deserts. And we know now, based on Northwestern's annual state of local news report, that a fifth of all Americans, that's 70 million people, live in counties in the US that have only one or no local newspapers. And so they are by definition, by the, this kind of working definition, they are news deserts. They're one closure away from having no local news or they already have no local news outlet. The important thing I think to add to that is many of these counties are counties characterized by low income, which means there are also problems with uh, internet access, affordable internet access. So residents of those counties are doubly cut off. They have limited local news and many of them are subject to, as Project Censored has reported in previous years, um, what we know as digital redlining or the digital divide where uh, uh, unequal access to, uh, to the internet is a form of social inequality that affects people's ability to be engaged as community members and informed as voters and citizens. So these are deep, deep troubling problems for uh, anyone concerned about the free press in contemporary United States. Andy, some people might be listening and watching this and thinking, well, what is this guy saying? Everyone's on Facebook, everyone's on X, or anyone can be on X, everyone's on threads, everyone's on TikTok. Things have changed since uh, Project Censored began. We no longer have a dominant mainstream press, for better or worse. And we have everyone at the click of a click of a mouse can be a citizen journalist, can comment, can read, can do whatever they like. How, how would you respond to that uh, critique of 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 the of, of the, the current state of media in America and its supposed democratization? Thank you. That's a great question. I'd respond in two ways. And the first one, I would go back to uh, that notion that, quote, everyone is on Facebook or X or whatever. And as one of my students used to say in class, check your privilege, Andy. Um, not everyone is on. It seems like everyone is on when your peer group is well represented. But that digital divide I was talking about is very real and well documented. So that's one problem with thinking like, oh, well, we all have access to free social media. A second problem with free social let, media. Let me just jump in on that. I, I take your point, but it's unlikely, Andy, isn't it, that the kind of people who aren't on social media, who for one reason or other don't have access to the internet, they're also not the kind of people who even in the glory days of local news media would have been buying local papers, would they? That's part of the problem. I, I Because... Should, right when I said earlier that part of the problem with corporate news media are narrow definitions of who and what count as newsworthy, the lives and interests of a lot of people are completely marginalized in most reporting. This is obvious, and this has been kind of a, a introduction to uh, media 101 type issue. 
right? We have some coverage in uh, the establishment press about poverty, but very rarely are poor people actually featured as subject actors in those stories, right? They may be talked about, but they aren't given voice. So that's part of the problem, that kind of narrow conception of who matters, who's, who's a, a consumer for news. And the idea that news is something like salmon that only wealthy people or privileged people have uh, a taste for, um, but that, you know, and everyone else is eating, uh, you know, hamburger or, or whatever. Um, so I think that's part of the problem. Um, and I think, you know, there are two factors in that. There's an economic factor, there's access. There's also an interest factor. And, that, and, and the problem in there, I think, is a two-way path. It's partly, for many people, the news as offered by establishment outlets is not very relevant to their lives or is perceived as not very relevant to their lives. And therefore, they have little interest in it. And, you know, students of mine would always say, I, I would ask, like, what news sources do you pay attention to? Do you pay attention to news? And a lot of students would say, I don't pay attention to the news. And I would say, why? And sometimes it's busyness, but sometimes people would say, because it's too depressing. And I think a lot of what passes as establishment news uh, is problematic in that way. It tells us about problems and it provides nothing in the way of solutions. And so one, one antidote, I think, to disinterest in the news is uh, what uh, kind of an emerging subgenre in journalism of what's known as solutions journalism. Some people might call that Disney journalism because some people well, might argue yeah. that things aren't Given the various economic and environmental political crises, Trump might be reelected next year. There's not a lot of good news. Well, yeah, there's certainly bad news, but they're also like part of what I think corporate news media do is they tell us the bad things and they offer us little in the way of solutions. And this is why I'm saying solutions journalism is, is something that it is another area where I think. Now, what, do you have some examples of online yeah. or physical publications or platforms yeah. that, that so there is that the, model. yeah the the most prominent one now is the solutions journalism network which has a solutions journalism tracker that doesn't use the same criteria that project censored does we don't see eye to eye on everything they draw equally from independent and corporate news outlets but the focus when we talk about solutions journalism is not the trivial 90 second segment at the end of the TV, the nightly TV news where the cat was in the tree and the firefighters came with the ladder to rescue it. That that kind of feel good story that the TV news networks like to uh, uh, send off on is not what I'm talking about or not what advocates of solutions journalism are talking about. We're talking about uh, uh, journalism that focuses on how communities and people uh, are coordinating together to address systemic problems. So, and my, I mean, I take your point. It's an interesting argument. But what happens if a group of people in a town and 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 this is not that unrealistic all agreed that they were opposed to immigration and they wanted to get every illegal or even legal immigrant out of their town and they started a publication? Mm -hmm. Is that an example of solutions journalism? 
Well, I would ask, what is the problem and what is the solution? And well, for them, it would be a problem. They don't like immigrants. They don't want immigrants in their community. I don't think you and I would probably be sympathetic. But if, if that's what they determined, is that a legitimate form of solutions journalism? No, I don't think that would count by anyone's standards of solutions journalism. So there is a political aspect to this for certain. Um, but I think, you know, like there, I would say there's a lack of critical media literacy uh, and perhaps a failure to understand how immigrants enrich communities rather than detract from them. Well, that's your, I mean, Andy, I agree with you, but that's your and my opinion. We're the coastal elites, we're progressives. What happens if people strongly disagree with that? It sounds to me as if that you're, you're, you're determining what the free press is according to your own, and perhaps we all do this, including myself, according to our own values, for better or worse. Well, for myself personally, I would, I, I would be happy wearing that on my sleeve and saying, you can ask me what my values are and I will tell you what I think is good policy when it comes to immigration. But in terms of, of uh, critical media literacy education, I think, again, the idea is what makes this story credible? Do we hear from a range of sources providing a range of perspectives? Is there evidence for the claims made in the article, either by the journalist who is the author of it or the people who are quoted as authoritative sources in it and so forth? So I think, I mean, I understand what you're getting at, and I think that's an important question. But I also don't think that our path forward in terms of creating meaningful alternatives to the kind of hegemonic quality of what passes as kind of the establishment press today doesn't come from pretending to be objective. It comes from having a standpoint and being transparent about it and reporting with the kind of journalistic ethics that the Society of Professional Journalism uh, uh, champions. Is and with Barbara Ehrenreich, Ehrenreich, for example, who sadly no longer around would she be a model for that sort of pioneering journalism for you uh well it's interesting i mean i think barbara ehrenreich's background is in some sense in social science uh and depending on the work you're talking about if it's something like nickel and dimed i guess that's a, a, an extreme form of uh, her book about uh uh what it's like to live when you're working on minimum wage or trying to work and live on minimum wage I guess I would think of that as a, a kind of long form uh, journalism. Um, it has those hallmarks. I think the interesting thing that Aaron Reich was doing in say a book like Nickel and Dimed is, uh, and this is something that is core to what Project Censored is about. One of our critiques of, of, uh, of, of a lot of reporting is that it's focused on events rather than issues. So journalists, by their daily routines and their professional values, are looking for novelty and, and dramatic, easily encapsulated events as stories. And the problem with that focus, and this is evident every year in our top 25 story lists of important but underreported stories, is that there are a lot of issues that never manifest as a single dramatic event, even perhaps symbolically but nonetheless have massive social implications. So one of our one of the project's judges who helps us evaluate each year's top 25 story list, Bob Hackett, who founded Newswatch Canada, 
has a great line. He says, for the corporate media, news is what about is about what went wrong today rather than what goes wrong every day. And so I think, you know, Ehrenreich's book is uh, Nickel and Dimed is interesting because it was dealing in a very personal way, in a very concrete and personal way with something that's a systemic problem in this country, which is uh, uh, wealth inequality and in particular, the working poor. Right. And, yeah, but the, the thing with all this stuff is that often you, you, there are bigger issues. Perhaps these are huge issues, which perhaps and, and the media then becomes epiphenomenal. You, your introduction, which you wrote with Mickey Huff, as I said, he's been on the show before, your co-editor of the book. You ask, what if journalism disappeared? Trump has warned that on day one, if he gets reelected, he's going to be an authoritarian. Some people fear he's going to shut the media down. He's not going to shut the kind of media, I think, down that you're involved with, but he would like to shut the Times or the Post down uh, or CNN. If, if those corporate media outlets disappeared, um, Andy, would you be too bothered if the Times, uh, if, if Trump shut the Times and the Post and CNN, would that bother you? Well, it's a different question to ask if they disappeared versus if Trump shut them down. Well, either way. If if Trump shut them down, I would be deeply disturbed because it goes against every free press principle that this country is founded on. If they simply disappeared because they were no longer relevant, financially viable, uh, trusted, I would say that would be a, 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 a seismic shift in the media landscape. But I think you see some of that already happening. And I, I don't mean local news outlets shutting down uh, uh, you know, post-pandemic, but if you look at the Pew Research polls, they always ask, you know, Pew Research polls focused on public trust in news media. Those figures are at historic lows, but one problem with those re the Pew Research, and it may be that there's too small a population to actually do, to, to do what I would like to see them do, is to differentiate between the establishment press, the big for-profit commercial operations, and their independent alternatives. Uh, because I think there are a lot of people uh, who do find meaningful news from independent news outlets that they do trust. Um, and the divide is that where the trust is eroding is in the big legacy outlets that are, you know, part of Project Censored's core. The, the old lady, we don't want to go back to the old lady, but the New York Times, finally, Andy, no need me to tell you this. Lots of headlines about the impact of AI on, on, on media, journalism, information. Some people are utopian, some are dystopian, some are mixed. There was an interesting story this week about ChatGPT uh, doing an open AI, the owner of ChatGPT, doing a deal with Axel Springer, the German publisher, to somehow what the, the, the journal called a, a multi-year pack where you have traditional media, traditional commercial media working with AI. What is your, and maybe we can end here, what is your hope and your fear about AI? It's inevitable, it's, it's more than on the horizon. It's something that's increasingly shaping our age. What do you most fear about a, AI and, and how can it help with a potentially a free press too? 
For fear, I would say the way that AI is uh, functioning as a new form of gatekeeper, an inhuman form of gatekeeper on the big tech platforms. So Google, which controls YouTube, Meta, which owns Facebook and Instagram, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there, I think the concern is that you have uh, at two levels, you have big tech corporations that have no commitment to journalistic ethics, nonetheless functioning as gatekeepers of people's access to news and public information. And at a secondary level, that control is manifest most specifically in the form of an algorithm uh, or, or algorithms, depending on which entity it is, that we have no independent access to, to assess forms of bias that may be baked into those algorithms. So that's a deep, deep concern. Uh, as far as uh, actual journalism, so, so that's, that's a, a way that AI as something external to journalism affects public, the public access to journalism. It, as far as in, term, in terms of internal to journalism itself, for a while there was fear that uh, some news outlets were going to begin using AI to write stories, to produce journalism. Um, the tech website CNET and also BuzzFeed flirted with this briefly, yeah. um, ultimately turned away from it. Um, and there's a great article that we actually cite in the introduction to the State of the Free Press 2024 uh, by Hamilton Nolan for writing for In These Times about why, why it is that AI won't uh, take over journalism. And the core point that, Hamil that Hamilton Nolan makes, and I think he's right about this, is that AI can never do what a living reporter does, which is explain how they came to have the story they have and make the editorial decisions that they've made. The other thing that Nolan points out in his piece is that uh, at least for now, journalism has, uh, journalists have powerful unions and those unions will fight AI taking over journalism tooth and nail. And one of our stories in this year's book as an underreported story is how Union victories have actually been underreported by the corporate media. So there are interesting connections there.